The following Dharma talk was given by Jody Hojin Kimmel at the Zen Center of New York City. Hojin Sensei is the abbot of the Zen Center and head priest at Zen Mountain Monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. From the record of Tung Shan, it is written, Once, as a child, when reading the Heart Sutra with his tutor, he came to the line, There is no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. He immediately felt his face with his hand and said to his tutor, I have eyes. I have ears, a nose, a tongue, and so on. Why does the sutra say they don't exist? This took the tutor by surprise, and recognizing Tong Shan's uniqueness, they said, I am not capable of being your teacher. So this is um, Tong Shan, or Tozan Ryokai, who we chanted this morning. Um, I believe his name came up, um, and he was the founder of the Kaldong School, Soto School. So Soto, the So is Sozan, the To is Tozan. So together they're the Soto School, the Kaldong Zen in China. And when I heard this story, when I read it, um, you know, you may also know Tozan from the fa- five ranks of Tozan. Um, which is the book I was reading. And when I heard this story, when I read it, it struck me right away that how marvelous this young person is taking this Heart Sutra so much to heart. That's what we chanted this morning. Do you remember? No eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. So why would the tutor say to Tsong Chan, I am not capable of being your teacher. Is he saying you're actually not a teachable student with that kind of question? And the teacher lacked patience to work with such a student? Was it some sense of Zen irony, you know, how in calling the untalented talented and the talented untalented, how they do that in koans? Did the teacher feel that Tong Shan was unique? Was the teacher being honest about their own realization of the Dharma? And what they saw in this young person, they said, I, I'm, not, I'm not capable of teaching you. You're, you're really seeing something here. And might this story have something to do with sincerity and practice? of just really like hearing that and going like, what is this wisdom teaching that we're receiving? I want to know. I want to know why that it's said. What is that about? And the sincerity that moves us in hearing such things in the Dharma. It's like, what is that talking about? Like I said this morning, you might be hearing English, but you might be going, what? What? <laughs> And the thing that which struck me about Tong Shan touching his face, 
so immediate, so concrete, so earnest in wanting to understand how the sutra could contradict something which is seemingly so evident to him. <laughs> and I, and I, after I heard this story, I remembered my own encounter. It might have just gone right over my head at the first time, but I remember after a while I was like, what is this? Why are they saying no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, no color, sound, smell, taste, touch, phenomena, no realm of sight, no realm of consciousness? There's 29 no's in the Heart Sutra. What is this no? No. Is it just really like, yes? Yes, this is how we are. This coming together of relative and absolute. Therefore, no Prajnaparamita is the great mantra, the vivid mantra, the unsurpassable mantra. It completely clears all pain. This is the truth, not a lie. And I was like, how do I know? Just every time I got, would get to that, this is the truth, not a lie. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's true. So I wanted to investigate Sincerity. What is sincerity in practice, in life, in life today? And I think animals know it, children know it. Yeah. And they can spot when they don't know it, too. Like they know when it's moving, when it's a real movement. How do we be honest with ourselves? And so we can be honest in the world. So this is one of the most important virtues, um, being honest and sincere with ourselves. It seems to make it possible to find the reason why we should and would strive to be a gentle person, a caring being, because it's impossible to be completely compassionate unless we are willing to face the reality in front of us. Without honesty or sincerity, they're they're similar. We will find that that kindness or that compassion will be out of reach in a way. Pema Chodron writes about this a lot, but she says, it's not so easy, we know, to take a good, honest look at ourselves the most fundamental aggression to ourselves, the most fundamental harm we can do to ourselves is to remain ignorant by not having the courage and respect to look at ourselves honestly and gently. Honestly and gently. So sincerity in practice doesn't have anything to do with knowledge or lack of knowledge. Tongshan's tutor recognized that. What is beautiful is that Tongshan wasn't the sort of student who would go blindly and disingenuously accepting something so that he could just regurgitate it on an exam or, or, or impress people. <laughs> Sometimes we do things to impress people and then forget about it. 
he wanted to genuinely engage the way. And as the record of Tongshan tells us, shortly after this incident, and he was pretty young, he left home and he had his head shaved and he went on to become one of the great teachers of the Tong dynasty. And the roots of, as I said, of that practice continue in just what you're doing today, what you learn today. That's from this, this little kid. <laughs> and uh, somebody recently gave me a copy of a book on Suzuki Roshi's teaching, Not Always So. You might have, some of you may have read this. And there was a passage in there where he was referring to sincere practice. And he says, what is sincere practice? When you are not so, sincere, not so sincere, it is difficult to know. But when you are sincere, you cannot accept the superficial. Only when you become very sincere will you know what it is. It's like appreciating good art. Maybe that got my attention. What is important, this is still him, is not the teaching, but the character or effort of the student. Even to seek for enlightenment means your mind is not big enough. You are not sincere enough because you have some purpose in your study. So Suzuki Roshi is stressing that a sincere student like Tong Shan doesn't accept superficial teachings and backhanded explanations, just like we're encouraged by the Buddha himself who said, test what I teach you which we're doing, you're sitting down and you're engaging the practice, which is testing it, and you're seeing what happens if I see a thought arise and, and I just acknowledge it and I just let it move on. And what happens also when I, when I hold on to that thought and I engage it and I keep the whole thing going, what, does, what happens with that? And why might, okay, so I was instructed, let it go. Just let it, put it aside. Just set it aside for now during this practice. We're doing a practice. It's not just sitting down and like whatever comes. We're practicing what's arising, releasing it for these 35 minutes. And we're discovering why, what happens What's the power of that? What begins to develop in us? And you will feel it. You will know for yourself if you sincerely engage it. That's the kind of sincerity, just to, just to take it up and see why has this come down maybe more than 2,500 years <laughs> to this very temple, to what you learned. And through ma- many bodies... He said, so he says, what is the sincerity that comes from effort just for the sake of effort? And we take that up in art practice as well. Sometimes we might get something out of it, an image or uh, a piece of work, a sculpture, a movement. But really, how are we as we're doing it? How are we in the process of creation where... Where is our mind? Where is our heart, our intention, our sincerity? And later Suzuki Roshi refers to Dogen's sincerity 
as Dogen Zenji was a monastic who wanted to be a sincere disciple of the Buddha. That's all. His problem was how to be a good disciple from the bottom of his heart and mind. To have this spirit is the most important. And we are all disciples or children of the Buddha as we practice the Buddha's way. We're adults, of course. I don't mean it like we're children, but we're children of the Buddha way, learning to engage it, of the, taking this path. So the dictionary um, definition of sincere is earnest, genuine, real, pure, unmixed, free of deceit, hypocrisy, or falseness. So these are developmental pieces in us that we need to develop, we should develop in our character and bring forth to our effort. He says, he also points Suzuki to um, that sincerity of practice manifests in the character and effort which the student makes. Then he throws in a caution not to have some agenda of attainment in our practice. So why do we do this? Like, isn't it to get enlightened or or get something? And he's saying, like, don't have that as your goal. It's like practice is enlightenment. We have ideas about putting light on our ignorance that we're going to get zapped or some magical place and we're going to, like, shoot through the temple ceiling or, or something. But it's just in that very sincere action of turning towards ourself, that is enlightened activity. That is enlightenment. And doing that with, with um, joyful mind, with a, a nurturing presence, with... Um, a big mind, that's an enlightened, an enlightened life. Even to seek for enlightenment means your mind is not big enough. You are not sincere enough because you have some purpose in your study. Then it's outside, some idea of a state we're hunting for. It's hard to, so that's the caution, right? So if you're coming in with that, just say like, okay. That's a pointing right there, right? While sincerity is valued in our life, in Zen practice, how can we be sincere in our practice without falling into the trap of self-conscious imitation sincerity? And don't we see that a lot? (laughs) The promises, the sincere promises trying to be sincere or having the self-conscious purpose or agenda to be sincere. Pema Chodron said, Sincerity conveys the importance of being rooted in the qualities of honesty, authenticity, and genuineness. There can be nothing phony or contrived in our motivations if we are to fully awaken to our natural and integral state of unified awareness. Teachings and teachers do point us inward 
to the peace beyond all understanding. It is always along the thread of our inner security or lack thereof that we will travel. Because an aspect of ego is that it's clever and artful in the ways of deception. And only the honesty and genuineness of our ineffable being, that ungraspable aspect of our self, can go beyond the influences of the crafty ego. At each step, step we take, at each breath we breathe, we're given the option of acting and responding, both inwardly and outwardly, from this egoic consciousness, the aspect of us that values control, separation above everything else, or from this intuitive awareness, which we're generating in our zazen, the intuitive aspect of our being, which appreciates and knows unity, which resides in the inner silence of our being. So that's what we drop out of the head, out of the intellect, out of the discursive mind into the lower part of our intuitive aspect that knows and appreciates unity. Without sincerity, it's very easy for even the greatest teachings anywhere to just become, as uh, Uchiyama used to call it, call it toys or playthings. We just play with them. Playthings of the mind. This is the part of that honest looking to catch ourselves with just having it be a concept or a toy in our mind and discern the good, what good will come if we just play around. How will we really get to transform if we don't engage seeing the thought and letting it go? Or just trying to just walk during kinhin? How will we know what that does if we just play with it as a, oh, just, just walk? It's a real thing. It's a real practice we are being termed. It's just, it seems, so simple that we may miss it. But it's these details that really bring home the teachings. It's these very fine details of, of how we conduct ourselves and how we work with ourselves that makes it all come alive. It's the aliveness of it. How do we get to root out our individual and collective suffering? How do we meet all that's happening in this world? All this over, what could be so overwhelming and maybe all to, to what's already overwhelmed that already came into this earth overwhelmed. And the power of the practice to meet each thing that comes, arises where we can find stability and find how, how to act from that. We practice with our body and mind. 
Sokni Rinpoche um, is a Tibetan teacher I once did a retreat with, and he works with a lot of American students. He fled Tibet to, I believe, to um, Nepal. And um, he said, American students are so fast with their mind. They're like, they get something like this. And he said, but their body is like three blocks behind. He says, and his whole practice is trying to get American students to let their bodies catch up with their, what they know, with their intellect. Just bring it together. It's so far behind because I got it. And then it just, it's like a thing in our head. And he, and I was struck by like, he actually noticed that. And he said in, in Nepal, he's got to light a fire under people because they just, they're very relaxed and they have all the, all this time in the world and they're just, he's got to like get them going. So he said it's very different. Um, and I know for myself how easy it's been and I have to watch to just remain on um, a surface level of consciousness. And sometimes it's without even knowing it until somebody brings something up and I realize, oh gosh, I was like here. I didn't really like take this in deeply. So this awakened state is always here, always present, but it can't be approached casually or insincere to get to that inner chamber We have to get quiet to gain access. And that's another part that we have to recognize is that we value being quiet at times, being still. Because part of the um, mechanism, if you will, with working people is to keep us busy moving fast. Our devices do that. We have to really watch so that we don't go too deep and think about what's happening. We're kept going as far as I feel and I see that it takes time to investigate things. You've got to slow down. And if we're kept going fast, we won't look and things will happen without us noticing. And this is happening more and more. So it's upon us to slow down in our life, to say, like, wait a minute, what am I hearing? What is this? And, and, and obviously we can't look at some of the resources that we have turned to because we're like, well, I don't know about that either. And, and so we really have to take our time to feel into it and our intuition of what we know from who we are, which is so vast. We are, we are in this body, our entire lineage going back to stardust. We've got parts of that in us. So what we're made of has a lot of intelligence and, and knowing and wisdom. And the only way to get into that chamber is to slow down and let it emerge. Let that emerge. To gain access to the body, we need to calm down. Because our 
that's been transmitted, that, that scared body, that running body. So that has to calm down, too, because all of that's in us. Where are we safe? We have to make that happen in ourselves, even if it's in a pinky. <laughs> we can tune in. So we enter a space like this, and there's a reason we're instructed to remove our shoes, get quieter with our speech and our voices as we enter the space. And sometimes part of us resists that. That's that ego part that demands attention, pleads with reality, makes conflicts. So we quiet that all down as we enter to rearrange a bit. We take our shoes off, which is quieting. It's humbling to go barefoot in here or wear your socks. (laughs) I always thought it was so precious to see all these bare feet on the floor. So open in a way, so raw, part of our rawness. We're encouraged that all who enter do so with an open mind and an open heart that you can receive, that you can listen, and that you can listen to the call that brought you here, why you woke up this morning, those of you who are new, and said, I think I'll go to a Zen temple. (laughs) Like, what? Like, what was that? And like, to really like, heed that call, like hear it, because it's so different the way you just turned. You just made a turn that was like out of the main line to sit on your seat and take the backward step to come to realize access to what has always been present all along. That's what you're choosing. So this attitude or quality of sincerity like self-esteem, like self-confidence. It's, it's more of an internal quality. And then it, we can reflect it externally. So we can't just develop self-esteem by deciding, okay, I'm a person with good self-esteem. You know, I've tried that. <laughs> okay, I'm a really sincere person. <laughs> or imagining how a person with good self-esteem would feel and only trying to feel those feelings. Sincerity can't be cultivated by imagining what it would feel like or adopting a view of, I am a sincere practitioner. We can't do that. Dogen gives us a hint where to begin this cultivation in Zui Monkey. I feel like when I read this, this was saying that. He said, the essential point to be careful about in practicing the way is casting aside your tendency from the past to cling to certain things. If you first change your physical behavior, your mind will be reformed as well. Firstly, carry out what is prescribed to do and avoid what is prohibited in the precepts then your mind will be reformed of itself. So 
we set ourselves up into this mountain pose, whether on the chair or the bench or the floor, we set ourselves up in stability in securing ourselves with the center of gravity and earth as our support. And we, we register that. And that begins to right our mind. And I remember this very distinctly. When I first sat down, I always felt like a hand was pushing my cheek like this. Do you ever have that feeling like there's a force? I don't know. I don't want to put it in you, but I did. And actually, I sat with my head to the side, and the monitor would come, and they would go like this. And I would be like, I felt like it was the exorcist. It was so, like, really? Like, my head is like, it felt like they just went like, and I was like, why, why do they keep doing that? And I can't, couldn't tell I was doing it. And I realized on a, on a very subtle level that something was coming up for me, and I didn't want to look at it like straight on, so I would go like this a little bit. And it took me a while to feel that, that adjustment. And as I sat, and with my hands in the mudra, which... The mudra gives us, settles our our life. This mudra is a settling of our life that I I was slowly coming back to um, center. And then too, he says, carry out what is prescribed and do and avoid what is prohibited in the precepts. So the prohibitions of the precepts that we are offered in this is don't create harm. Practice good. Actualize good for others. Don't kill life. Don't steal. Don't misuse your sexuality. Don't cloud your mind. Don't speak of others' errors and faults. Don't blame. So to keep the precepts in mind will also begin to uh, reform, as he says, our (coughs) our mind as well. Dogen is emphasizing the doing and letting the fruit of that effort take care of itself. And that's exactly our effort in Zazen. We work with the mind directly by focusing on our body first. And we take that as a given, but we that's the first thing you learn is how to set up your body, right? Before the mind training where you can actually study this for yourself in the upright posture and how that informs the basis of that upright mind. The power of this doing to transform our mind and everything associated with mind cannot be underestimated. And there's a story that a friend practitioner told me, which I really appreciated, um, what he learned through the 12 Steps group he works with. And he told me this story that gets often told in groups. He says, a new member entering the group had a resistant attitude about recovery work. To help with their attitude, the sponsor, the the mentor, told them that they wanted this new member to arrive early to help set up the chairs for the meeting. And the new member asked, how long would they have to do this? And the sponsor answered, until you want to do it. And it reminded me of Milarepa, too, 
who constantly was told by his teacher Marpa, Milarepa had murdered someone and then found his way to the teachings and wanted to reform his mind. He actually had remorse. And so Marpa would tell him to build something and then he'd finish it and think that was it. And the teacher would say, no, take it down and move it over there. So he would do it there. The teacher would come back. No, it's not the right place. Take it down. And I'm talking about big buildings, big structures, not just, you know, a swing set. <laughs> and then put it over there until he just went through, like, all this. It nearly killed him nearly killed Milarepa, the pain he went through. And as he's going through that sincere effort to reform himself, he did, because it was so sincere. And he had to die. A lot of him had to die to be, to be born into this new life, to really reform that, that stream of consciousness that got him into all that in the first place all the conditioning that we work with. We feel those deaths, that it's our pain. It's our wanting to move. It's, 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 and that's what we're, we're working with. We're massaging it. It's like, okay. And we're trusting. We have to get that in us, especially if we're just starting. Just be sincere about it to like, okay, let go, come back, see what happens, right? That's what happens. It's ineffable. That's the ineffable trust, the ungraspable trust of our being that he's speaking of, what Tozan was, was after. When it comes to sincere practice, oh, so, yeah, so Dogen says, maybe when we start Zen practice, we might feel confused and anxious, and we are focused on what we can get from Zen. So if if we just begin by saying this yes that I'm speaking of, yes to practice opportunities, then the mind is reformed by practice. Or if we're saying no, but inside's a little hidden yes, we like, part of us is going no, but yes, yes, that happens together sometimes. It's like we know something and the yes is a little bit stronger than the no. Our confusion lessens, and our character and effort develop, and our sincerity, sincerity in our practice increases. So sometimes I look for teachers that are examples, especially if I've spent time with them. Not only in Zen, I think of the woman I did a clay apprentice with, apprenticeship with. She had this sincere effort. And it wasn't heavy-handed either. It wasn't like, I'm being sincere. That's what I mean. Kids can sense that, and so can animals. <laughs> they know when we're not, not on par. Suzuki Roshi mentions, if you want to know what sincerity, what is sincerity, you should have a good teacher, because seeing them, you will know what a good teacher is. When you see a sincere person, you will know what sincerity is. And I feel that with my teacher, Shugen Roshi, and all my monastic companions, and actually all of you here today, I feel your sincere practice. And it gives power. It gives benefit to others. 
earlier this week, I was on a retreat with four other women uh, Zen teachers. I invited Sho on, and a few others, um, three others came from other traditions, all in the Zen tradition. And we created this retreat together. We just wanted to be together at this time to learn about each other. We we met at conferences, but we never actually like had much time together. And we felt like this is the time. We have some things to discuss here for the for for um, our practice and what it's been like in this body. Um, just to share. And um, one evening, we watched a video on a ceremony for Ananda, um, the disciple of the Buddha. You might remember that Mahapajapati, the mother of the Buddha, this was way back, came to where the Buddha was and asked if the women could be admitted into the order. And the Buddha said, no. And after he just finished saying in so many of his talks how everyone had the awakened mind, this was not for a select few. And so she said, she asked again, and he said no. And Ananda intervened, the Buddha's attendant and cousin, and said, uh, excuse me, didn't you say that all beings are capable of realizing themselves and attaining enlightenment? And the Buddha said, yeah. And Nanda said, well, what about these women, these very sincere women who want to practice the Dharma? And Ananda asked three times, and the Buddha then admitted the women to the order with their special rules, a little bit more than the men had at that time, very um, binary, of course. And... um, so this was a ceremony for Ananda, which I had a little pushback for in the first when I first learned about it. I was like, "Why do we have to bring Ananda into this?" You know, Mahapajapati walked 500 miles with bloody feet. She asked for herself. Okay, so there's a ceremony created for Ananda. I've I've since grown a little bit more warmer to it, um, but. Um, the officiant for the ceremony was uh, Shundo Ayoma, who was the abbess of uh, Senman Nisoto, a women's nunnery in Japan. And she's been the abbess since 1976. She herself was ordained in 1948 at the age of 15. And so um, these two American women I was with both trained at this Nisoto um, uh, temple. And she had an, she has a couple books. You may know Zen Seeds, but another book she had is called Nothing is Hidden. You, you know that one? Um, it's a collection on Dogen's essays on Tenzo Kyokan, uh, Instructions for the Cook. And in it she had, a, and I just gave a talk on some aspect of that. So in this book, she had an essay titled A Monk's Mouth is Like an Oven. <laughs> so that drew my attention because people always said, "How come all the other people have small bowls and the monks have this big round, <laughs> giant bowl that they eat from?" And I said, "Well, that used to be a begging bowl. That was the only bowl they had. So that was their entire food that they received. So that's why it's bigger. But it's called a monk's mouth is like an oven, and she gives some wonderful examples of sincere practice." 
And she tells this one story of how she, as abbess, uh, vowed to work as the uh, head cook, the tenzo, uh, during sessions at the monastery as an expression of her gratitude. That's a pretty heavy job, right? Cooking for everyone. And she is the abbess. And so that's what she volunteered to do. And then one day, which is not common in Sishin, the two bowls came back to the kitchen and they still had some food in them. And if you've done Oriyoki, we, we scrape everything out, but they came back with some food in it. And she examined the bowls and found there was a dead insect in two of the bowls. And she was mortified, shocked, because she put a lot of effort into um, cleaning the vegetables very carefully, but still had missed these two insects. And after Sashin, she was giving a talk and apologized to the group for her mistake, missing these insects. So I was struck by um, some qualities that she had, both of being honest about the insects and not being um, able to come out of her role as, as the ab- abbess of the temple, as the abbot, abbess she used, for her motivation of cook to, be, um, to express her gratitude not just by saying thank you, but, but doing an act, an act of service like that. As Dogen advises, to do the doing first, and the mind will be transformed of itself. And then the thoroughness in her activity. So doing something thorough doesn't necessarily, necessarily mean it's going to come out okay. She said, I washed the vegetables very carefully. And maybe they came in later. Maybe they flew in later. I don't know. But she took it. Her emphasis was on activity rather than result. What, what she did. The humility and the accountability that she demonstrated when she realized that her washing of the greens had come up short, perhaps, and two insects were served in the Oriochi bowls. And as abbess, she could have easily chosen not to address any of this. And probably people would be too polite to say anything. We're learning how to say something sometimes. Nevertheless, despite that privilege and deference, she apologized during a talk to the assembly. Maybe what she felt inside was that somehow that would affect the integrity of our own practice. It took some, something from her, and she knew she had to address it. I really appreciate that. That's just my own sense. What do we do that undermines sincere practice? Comparative thinking, if we indulge in that a lot, comparing us, like... Everyone here is a participant. Are you less important than the instrumentalist or me giving, giving this talk? No. If you don't have a robe, is that somehow less than somebody who has one? No. 
All of us have value, and that can't be compared. All of us are important ingredients for creating this environment, this situation, this ritual, this ceremony, right here, right now, this celebration of life, this bringing together of supporting each other in our practice. Each of our efforts is a gift to the Sangha, to the community. And our efforts are not this, just this community. We're practicing it here so we can bring this gift to all Sanghas, to the Sangha of the world past, present, and future, that we can imagine this happening everywhere. At ZMM, there's a scroll with a calligraphy of Bodhidharma. He's a very heavy-set, grumpy-looking man <laughs> with bushy eyebrows and no eyelashes, because it said he, to stay awake, he pulled them off and threw them to the ground, and tea plants grew, so people could stay more awake. And there's a calligraphy with it. And you know, he's, it's kind of like this image, it reminds me of, I don't know if you saw, watched Harry Potter, but you know how eyes and paintings would go like this when you move? <laughs> so every time I walk by this image, I feel like his eyes move <laughs> and he's watching me. He was the first Zen patriarch in China. But anyway, the calligraphy reads, Pointing directly at your own heart, you find the Buddha. Pointing directly at your own heart, you find the Buddha. That looking directly into our own heart, we find the awakened Buddha. The completely unclouded experience of how things really are. In all kinds of situations, we can find out what is true by studying ourselves in every nook and cranny, in every black hole, in every bright spot, whether it's murky, creepy, grisly, greasy, splendid, spooky, frightening, joyful, inspiring, peaceful, wrathful. We can just look at the whole thing. And there's a lot of encouragement to do this. And meditation, zazen, gives us a way So along with clear seeing is another important element, which is kindness and gentleness. Without clarity and without honesty, we don't, we we have to do that to progress in a sense. I'll use that word, progress. But we can stay stuck in the same vicious cycle if we're not warming it up if we're not kind. Because sincerity without kindness can make us feel grim and mean. As Dido would say, we start looking like we're, my teacher, we're sucking on a bunch of lemons. Just grim. No warmth. To remember along with introspection accountability, thoroughness, humility. We don't lose contentment or gratitude. Don't lose heart, awakened heart that balances everything out. So I wanted to end with a piece from a book I have on 
Robert Frost, which I got on, on a blanket on State Street for a dollar. <laughs> In one of his notebooks, he writes, and it was great to find this, there is such a thing as sincerity. It's hard to define, but it is probably nothing more than your highest liveliness escaping from a succession of dead selves. Miraculously. It is the same with illusions. Any belief you sink into when you should be leaving it behind is an illusion. Reality is the cold feeling on the end of the trout's nose. So, I don't know, for me it left me with Frost is not just saying that sincerity is just really being yourself or telling it like it is. It happens miraculously, not by command or, or, or the will. It's the force that breaks through the succession of dead selves, as he said. Nothing more than your highest liveliness escaping from a succession of dead selves. I just love that. Not a set identity, more as an action that is noticeable precisely because of its kinetic movement, liveliness. Illusion is not wrong because it fails to measure up to some eternal spiritual ideal, but because it happens to not work. So we know sincerity by the way it moves, by the way it acts. We know sincerity by the way it moves. And we can realize for ourselves, there is no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, no mind, no old age and death, and no end to old age and death, no ignorance and no cause of ignorance, no suffering, no cause of suffering, by how it moves. And then we can feel fully enter this world of eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and know the truth of how it moves and create a movement, create a true movement. So as we chant, may our sincere vows to accomplish the Buddha way be realized together. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats, and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.